I'm Chris Reback. And I'm Tegan Goddard. You're listening to the free version of Trial Balloon. Visit trialballoon.fm to get new episodes every week and more. Tegan, do I sound different to you today? You sound a little different, Chris. You sound far away. I'm in an undisclosed bunker. Well, I hope you're with Dick Cheney. As long as he doesn't have a shotgun. The only thing I can say is that at some point in this travel, Philly cheesesteaks are in my future. If you could order me one too, I'd appreciate that. You like the extra cheese probably. No, of course. You know who else likes Philadelphia? President Biden. There's the transition. He's actually more a Scranton guy, but I think Jill is an Eagles fan. I think I still remember seeing that tweet. But not only is Joe willing to travel to Philly, willing to travel to Scranton, he made a trip to Ukraine this week. One of the most remarkable scenes that we've seen of a president, maybe since Ronald Reagan went to Berlin and told Gorbachev to tear down this wall, it was truly a memorable experience. And the stagecraft getting the president of the United States into a war zone without U.S. fighters overhead protecting him. I mean, we're going to be reading about how this was done for weeks and months to come. The comparison to Reagan, I know what you mean in terms of the substance, but Reagan went in, no cloak and dagger around his travel into Berlin. This trip for Biden, what was it, like a 415 departure under the cover of darkness, shades pulled, refueling or something, I think it was in Germany, then to the overnight train. And all of the questions about Biden's age, that was quite difficult travel. I mean, that was not comfortable travel, it didn't seem like. Well, I've never taken a 10-hour train ride, but I can't imagine that that's all that much fun, not to mention the flight over to Europe to begin with. The stagecraft of this we'll be talking about for a long time. The politics of it are certainly interesting, heading into a likely re-election campaign. As you mentioned, age is the one thing about Joe Biden that he can't change. He is 80 years old, and he will be almost 82 if he's sworn in for a second term. But what Biden did here really helped combat what many see as his big weakness, which is that he is old, that he cannot do these types of things. You'll remember during the Trump years, protesters outside of the White House and Donald Trump went down to the bunker. Joe Biden went into a war zone. The comparison is really striking. There is, although somebody who's coming to you now from an undisclosed bunker, I really I can't make fun of Trump on that point. But yes, I understand big difference in going in and, as you said, without the air cover. What about the message? You compared it to Reagan and his statement to Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I know in other conversations, you've thought perhaps that it's almost like a JFK, I am a Berliner speech that he gave in 1963. But you feel like it's powerful on that type of level. Oh, absolutely. The rallying of NATO countries, the meeting with the Eastern countries of NATO, saying that the United States would defend them, that this was the last line. Very, very powerful stuff. The way that Biden has packaged this defense of Ukraine as a defense of democracy, not just in Ukraine, but across Europe and even here in the United States. There's no surprising anymore, Chris. You know, when we look to an Apple event and we're looking for a new gadget, unfortunately, these days we hear about every new gadget that's been developed and that may be released. We're not surprised very much. When we woke up to hear that Joe Biden had gone to Ukraine, actually in Kiev with Zelensky, that's pretty remarkable. And what about Putin's reaction, saying that he's going to pause the nuclear treaty or the participation in the nuclear treaty with the U.S., the big concert that they had, you know, where they registered people to keep track of who's coming in? And then, of course, China's foreign minister going to visit. Biden got a response from his visit. 
he definitely got a response. But just as Biden's visit was symbolic, I think Putin's response is also symbolic. So if you're looking at the START Treaty and suspending the START Treaty, for all intents and purposes, that's been suspended since before the pandemic. There have not been inspections that have happened. When you think about the meeting with a Chinese foreign minister, the fact that Putin was not at a long table as he greets most people was actually seen as symbolic of trust, that he trusts the Chinese and that there's a trusting relationship between these two countries. More than he trusts his own defense ministers, it seems then. That's the type of thing that I think is really troublesome going forward what China will do in this conflict. But right now, that's still unknown. President Xi is apparently going to go visit Moscow. It's reminiscent of the Cold War, where you've got the Russian leader and the U.S. leader making big speeches, sizing each other up from across a big divide. What about domestically? You saw all the commentary that on President's Day, Joe Biden went to Ukraine instead of going to East Palestine, Ohio, where the train derailment and the chemicals. And it just shows that he puts America last, not America first. What do you think about the politics domestically? There's really two messages. One is summarized by Donald Trump Jr., who claims that Biden went to Ukraine because he's still worried about Hunter Biden's laptop. That's one message coming out of the right. You've got other people who side with Donald Trump Jr. who are opposed to military aid to the Ukraine, and they're cozying up with Russia for some reason in this fight. But then there's the other side of the Republican Party, where Mitt Romney came to the defense of Joe Biden. Not only the defense, he praised Joe Biden for what he did. There are many other leaders who praise Biden for standing so firmly with Ukraine, including Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate. It's like everything else domestically. We've got about a third of the country who is going to be opposed to Biden no matter what he does. They're probably opposed to him getting a dog. That's unfortunately the state of U.S. politics. A third of the country will always be opposed to what Biden's doing. And as you mentioned, Donald Trump Jr., it's hard this week not to also talk about Donald Trump Sr., and in particular, the person who is being known as the talkative grand juror in Georgia. Can we talk about Emily Corris for a moment? What on earth is she thinking? You know, she's the forewoman of the Georgia special grand jury who over the course of 48 hours decided to have five big interviews ranging from the Associated Press, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, NBC News, Washington Post, CNN. She gave these big interviews all of a sudden. I guess it was the Associated Press that found out about her, that found out that she, in fact, was the head of this special grand jury. And in true American sense, the jury of your peers, which is really interesting. Emily Kors was a retail clerk who was in between jobs when she was tapped to be the foreperson of this special grand jury. She divulged all sorts of interesting things without divulging the thing that we want to know. Is Donald Trump going to be indicted? We heard new things from her that there were a lot of recordings of Donald Trump other than that one hour phone call that we heard where he's looking for Raffensperger and the Republicans in Georgia to round up more votes for him. We discovered that there's likely to be perjury charges against some people, names that we may know, names that we may not know. Names we, that we will know. <laughs> names that we will know, exactly. She was almost giddy at the idea that Donald Trump had responded to the report or the parts of the report that were released by the judge last week in which Donald Trump claimed total exoneration. She was giddy about that and said how fantastic that was. That's phenomenal. She loves it in a very sarcastic way. And then she also added that she would be upset if there were no indictments after spending eight months working on this report. 
in her view, she believes that there were crimes committed. She said, that's the only thing that would make me sad if this whole thing just disappears. When you talk to lawyers, they're divided on whether this helps Trump or hurts Trump. I imagine that the district attorney in Fulton County, she would much rather have Emily Kors not talk. And I know you know one of the main purposes of our having this conversation is that there are in this world legal ramifications and legal impacts. There are economic impacts and ramifications, but there are also politics. The politics of this is what is interesting for purposes of our conversation right now. Two main aspects in my mind. One is the content of what she said, and you just went through some of that, as well, the fact that she said it. You asked on Political Wire at the end of one of your posts on this, you asked readers, what do you make of these interviews? Leave your thoughts in the comments. And that's the politics of this, that the Fulton County District Attorney may not want Emily Kors talking about this. What about the politics of it? And let me tell you, the comments that you got were pretty striking and very, very consistent. One person, it would have been better had she held her tongue. Another person, I wish she hadn't spoken too, just muddies the water. Next person, I listened to her interview on CNN last night. It's pretty clear that she shouldn't have been talking at all. I agree with those who noted that she comes across as extremely naive, and the fact that she said she has no concerns about her own personal safety reinforces the impression. Another person, I don't think she should have been out giving interviews. Next person, as much as I would like to see Trump and his allies held accountable for trying to overturn the 2020 election, I think a grand juror should keep her mouth shut and let the process play out. I do not think her comments are helpful and only serve to give Trump's supporters more ammunition for saying the grand jury was partisan and biased against Trump. Do your job and go home. That's the deal. And then to close out, your good friend Charlie Sykes tweeted, seriously, this woman should not be on television. She should not be doing this. There is no upside. Do they have the politics on this right? Is this, was this actually potentially helpful for Trump? Well, I think Charlie has it exactly right. There is no upside if you're opposed to Donald Trump and you're hoping for an indictment. There's no upside at all to this. What I found pretty interesting was that Trump was blindsided by this because when the partial report came out, he claimed it was total exoneration. Exonerated. As he's prone to do. Not at all. Anyone who managed to actually read that report would find out that he actually was not exonerated. Plenty of evidence there that his claims of fraud in Georgia were completely bogus. What he did actually just this week is he actually went to Truth Social and he seized on these potential violations of grand jury secrecy and took a completely different tact, saying that the whole case is ridiculous, that it's part of the greatest witch hunt of all time, referring to the district attorney as racist, and then commenting indirectly on Emily Kors and the fact that she was giving up the inner workings and thoughts of this grand jury in violation of the law. Donald Trump was caught off guard by this. And there was a report from CBS News that suggested that some of the witnesses in this case that may have perjured themselves are already preparing a defense and trying to have charges dismissed based on Emily Kaur's comments. Well, again, when we talk to lawyers, lawyers are kind of split about this, but the politics is pretty clear. It was not helpful to anybody who wants to see Donald Trump indicted or hurt by this case. So what happens next? This is a bit of a risky question because what happens next may actually occur between the time that we're recording this, which is earlier in the day on Thursday than we normally do, and when this posts, this podcast posts on Friday. With the risk that there is news that gets broken between this conversation and the actual publishing, what happens next on this? 
Well, I'm going to put a call into Fannie Willis to make sure that the indictments don't come out until the podcast is out. So I'll, I'll take care of that. Don't worry about that, Chris. Appreciate you. Uh, I mean, there's a really fantastic piece. It seems like we've read dozens and dozens of these types of pieces over the weeks. This case is just one of four criminal cases against Donald Trump. There are four different criminal cases right now all of which seem to be converging. And it seems like decisions on indictments may happen any day now. Is this the one? It's particularly interesting because we obviously have Donald Trump on audio tape. It seems like there's probably no better evidence that he was trying to get the election overturned than him actually talking about getting it overturned. But one of these criminal cases seems likely to land in an indictment. And Donald Trump is a presidential candidate right now. What I find interesting, and this is for discussion probably at another time, is what is the impact of an indictment on Donald Trump politically? I'm not sure it fully hurts him. It would certainly hurt him in a general election. I'm not sure it would hurt him in a Republican primary. I think you would see a significant part of the Republican Party rally behind him, rally behind his calls that this is a witch hunt including some probably, you know, fairly high up legislators in the party. So what is Kevin McCarthy going to say? Kevin McCarthy seems would probably come to Trump's defense if he was indicted. That's what's really interesting. Marjorie Taylor Greene. (laughs) Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene would certainly do that. But it's really interesting to see what the politics of an indictment would be for Trump as he's running for president. I'm sure Ron DeSantis, who's trying to ignore Trump right now, is hoping that that might be the missile that does in Trump and does in his campaign. But I don't think that's going to happen. Anyone who's paid attention to Donald Trump knows that he kind of keeps going when times get tough. He fights back all the time, particularly if he's wrong. The point that you're making aligns with one of your posts in Political Wire this morning. Republicans are headed for an epic primary battle. While anything can happen in politics, it's increasingly hard to see how the Republican presidential nominee will be anyone but Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis. It's just hard to imagine Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, Tim Scott, or anyone else beating the top two. As Maggie Haberman noted to David Leonhardt, one way it could happen would be if DeSantis took a commanding lead in the polls and Trump then tried to destroy him. And the thought of Trump as the indicted martyr, it is unclear whether that would actually be a negative for Trump in a Republican primary, especially given how the battle with DeSantis very likely could end up going. You know, we all laughed six years ago when Donald Trump said he could go out into the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and nothing would happen. Yes. We all laughed about the comment. Anyone who's been paying attention knows that that's true among a large portion of the Republican Party, much larger than we ever thought. We will see how this thing plays out. You know, as I said in that one piece, both candidates have their weaknesses. You know, DeSantis is not a charismatic politician, has never been on the national stage before. He's pretty much trying to ignore everything Donald Trump says right now, not engage with him. When he's forced to engage with him on the national stage, we'll see what voters think. They may not like him. And of course, Trump's biggest weakness right now, at least in a Republican primary, is that he could be indicted any day. And we just don't know how that's going to play out. But one thing I'm pretty confident of is it's going to get ugly. Vegas does not take the other side of that bet. It's going to get ugly. If Donald Trump is a person who it's frequently said about him that he says out loud the stuff that he also says or should be saying in private, do you know who says things in private that are completely contradictory to what they say out loud, Tegan? I've got three people, Chris. 
I've got Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, and Laura Ingraham. That would be your Fox News hosts, yes. That's that's the Fox News primetime lineup. Turns out that their text messages are a little bit different than what they say on air. Turns out. Heather Cox Richardson wrote in her Letters from an American, Dominion Voting Systems is suing the Fox News Channel for defamation after the Fox News Channel personalities repeatedly claimed that the company's voting machines had corrupted the final tallies in the 2020 election. The filing today shows that those same personalities didn't believe what they were telling their viewers. There's your jaw dropping again, Tegan, I know. And suggests that they made those groundless accusations because they worried their viewers were abandoning them to go to channels that told them what they wanted to hear, that Trump had won the election. The quotes in the filing are eye-popping, writes Heather Cox Richardson. On November 10th, 2020, Trump advisor Steve Bannon wrote to Fox News personality Maria Bartiromo, quote, 71 million voters will never accept Biden. This process is to destroy his presidency before it even starts. If it even starts, we either close on Trump's victory or delegitimize Biden, the plan. Fox's internal fact checks on November 13th and November 20th called accusations of irregularities in the voting, quote, incorrect and said there was not evidence of widespread fraud. After that came the texts that you were just talking about. On November 15th, Laura Ingram wrote to Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, quote, Sidney Powell is a bit nuts. Sorry, but she is. On November 16th, Carlson wrote to his producer, quote, Sidney Powell is lying. On November 19th, Fox News chairman Rupert Murdoch wrote, really crazy stuff. Hannity later testified that whole narrative that Sidney was pushing, I don't believe it for a second. Finally, there were a bunch of other tweets. Then there was the great one. After Fox News reporter Jackie Heinrich accurately fact-checked a Trump tweet, correcting him by saying that top election infrastructure officials said that there is no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or was in any way compromised. Carlson told Hannity, quote, please get her fired. Seriously, what the F? I'm actually shocked. It needs to stop immediately, like tonight. It's measurably hurting the company. The stock price is down. Not a joke. Heinrich deleted her tweet. You know, you got the text right there, Tegan. Well, it's like saying the quiet part out loud, writing it down in these texts that two years later we're able to read is pretty remarkable. I mean, Heather Cox Richardson is absolutely right. These were eye-popping quotes. They were shocking texts, except for the fact that neither you nor me nor Heather are actually too surprised if you pay attention to the way Fox News carry themselves as a, quote, news network. What's pretty interesting about all of this is that, and it's hard to put yourself back there two years after the election, Trump is not admitting defeat. He is starting to actually raise the idea of fraud in this election. And what Fox News is watching at this time is they are watching their ratings start falling. And they got nervous. And Tucker Carlson got nervous. Sean Hannity got nervous. Laura Ingram got nervous. And at the end of the day, they changed their tune because we can see what they say on their channel. And it was very different from these texts. And they changed their tune because they did not want to lose those viewers. And so even though they realized these were lies in their texts, they actually gave a platform for these exact same lies, which is pretty damning in a lawsuit that Dominion's bringing, by the way. I don't even think this is one of those situations where it's shocking, but not surprising. I think it's neither shocking nor surprising. This is one of our friend Ben Thompson's key points. If you want to understand something, just look at the business model. And that's the business model at Fox. We can talk about business models at other cable channels or other publications or other news or entertainment outlets. Everyone's got a business model. And this is the Fox News 
business model. That's their audience. And if they want them to keep watching, they have to keep giving them what they want. That's how that part of the business works. And so there has been an effort for years by people on the, let's say on the left and certainly in the middle to try to get a wider range of folks to understand that this is what Fox News does. They call it Fox News, but they have an audience and they're trying to put out content to keep that audience. Will this make that more widely understood? Or in the end, is this just a shrug and everyone who already thought this in the first place? Well, it's like, yeah, duh, I knew this. It's not shocking. It's not surprising. I think you're absolutely right. It's an excellent point about Fox News's business model. The business model is not news. The business model is nurturing an audience and selling ads against that audience. That's what they're trying to do. Whether this hurts Fox News among the broader electorate I don't want to be cynical, so I want to say that I do think it's going to hurt Fox News because I do think that there are plenty of people who tune into Fox News, see it says news on the channel, and treat it as news. Even some of those primetime opinion shows, they treat those as news. I can't tell you how many people I come across who refer to something that they've seen on Fox News. And while there is news on the Fox News channel, those shows by Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram are not news. So I would like to believe that it's actually that these revelations will actually hurt the channel among those people. But I could easily be surprised. Is there a play here for Democrats in terms of advertising or communications if you were the Democratic Party writ large? What is shocking to me is that the Democrats have done nothing on this. What I would be doing is running ads. Here's what Tucker Carlson says in private. Here's what Tucker Carlson says on air. Here's what Sean Hannity emails in private. Here's what Sean Hannity says every night on television. And if not the Democratic Party itself, some democratically aligned super PAC should be running these types of ads. I just don't understand why they're not there. It seems like a no-brainer. Do you know what Chris Reback says in public, Tegan? Whatever's on trial balloon. He says it's time to go. Thanks, Tegan. <laughs> Bye, Chris.